Atamari here. Welcome to First Up. It is Rapare Thursday, the 2nd of March. Call Nathan Rarari Aho coming up. At least 36 people have been killed in a train collision in Greece, so we'll go to Europe for the latest. We asked the Deputy Prime Minister, Carmel Sepuloni, about crime in cyclone hit regions and if a buyout of affected properties is on the cards. And residents from a part of Hawke's Bay that's still almost totally cut off uh, gathered last night to figure out how on earth they're going to reunite with the rest of the world. We need heavy vehicle access in and out of here because sheep and beef farmers need to get lambs out, otherwise they are not going to have the pasture cover going into winter and then if that's our case then every animal is going to suffer. everybody, welcome to First Up. Nathan Rarity here and we begin this morning in Greece. 36 people have been killed after two trains collided near the city of Larissa. The local station master has been arrested and charged with manslaughter. Investigators are trying to figure out why the trains were on the same track. The BBC's Jessica Parker has the story. Within seconds, two trains rumbling through the night came to this a head-on crash between a freight and passenger service carrying around 350 people. It was chaos, tumbling over, fires, cables hanging, broken windows, people screaming, people trapped. You can see the shock, the fear on the faces, some stained with blood of those who escaped. We were sitting in the second carriage from the front of the train. But in the front, it was very difficult for anybody to survive because the collision happened head on. At some point, we heard an announcement about a delay from the driver because there was confusion with the railway tracks. A minute later, boom. As day breaks, the force of the impact becomes clear. Carriages destroyed, burnt out or thrown off the track. Many on board, it's reported, were young people heading back to Thessaloniki after a Greek Orthodox holiday. What's left now is a mess of metal and shattered glass, seats strewn on the ground. Everywhere, evidence of the force of this collision. Our thoughts are with the victim's relatives. Our duty is to treat the injured and then to identify the bodies. I can guarantee only one thing. We will find out what caused this tragedy and we'll do whatever we can to avoid anything similar in the future. Efforts to find people who may still be alive stretched on for hours. The cause of all this isn't yet clear, but an investigation's been launched as authorities say the two services were running on the same track, leading to what's being described as Greece's worst train crash in living memory. That was Jessica Parker reporting there. With us now from Europe's our correspondent, Anita Purcell-Sherland. Uh, Morena, Anita, what's been the reaction to this tragedy from around Europe? Well, the European Commission uh, flew flags at half-mast today in solidarity with Greece, and the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, and European Parliament President, Roberta Metsola, also expressed their condolences. Uh, von der Leyen wrote on Twitter that the whole of Europe is mourning with Greece, while Metsola tweeted similar sentiments when she wrote, we are by your side. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky also expressed consul- uh, condolences to the Greek government, while uh, 
Greek foreign minister, Nikos Dendias, has been receiving phone calls from his European counterparts expressing their condolences. For example, Dendias received a phone call from the Italian and Turkish foreign ministers who passed on their government's support. And Albanian President Bayram Begay wrote uh, that he felt shocked by what happened in Greece and that he and the Albanian nation stands together with Greece. Yeah. We, we, we heard there before that there was two trains on the same track. So investigations have got underway. It says he would focus on European train control system or the ETCS. Tell us about this. Well, basically, the ETCS um, is one of two elements of the European Rail Traffic Management System. And uh, the purpose of the ETCS is to inform the train driver of the state of the rail line at a great distance in front. Now, the ETCS um, automatically receives data from ground delays and determines the maximum allowed speed or even slow down the train when necessary. Now, issues regarding um, the ETCS as well as the uh, the communication systems is that on the Greek rail uh, system, modern GPS systems and related technologies are absent or under-functioning, and to a large extent, control and management is done manually um, with the risk of uh, increase in human error. Wow. Uh, let's move to uh, something just, in fact, the country just next door to you, where you are now. Finland. Finland building a 200-kilometre fence on its border with Russia. It's going to have to be a pretty tall fence to keep them out. Yeah, well, the aim is to boost security, and Finland's border guard said the fence will be three metres high with barbed wire on top. Now, at present, Finland's borders are secured by light wooden fences with the purpose of containing livestock. Now, Finland shares the longest European Union border with Russia at 1,340 kilometres, so that's going to be one heck of a fence. And Finland decided to build the fence to stop a rise in Russians seeking to escape conscription to fight in Ukraine. In September, large numbers of Russians started fleeing to Finland after President Putin ordered a a mobilization of reservists to fight in Ukraine. Now, Estonia, Latvia and Poland have also increased security on their borders with Russia and uh, by building fences or they're planning to do so. Ah, okay. Now, the Spanish winemakers are looking to the future. What what are they going to do that's very future-ish? Well, futurists are looking. Um, they're looking in the past because what they're looking for are ancient climate-resistant grapes to tackle climate change. Now, uh, winemakers such as Taurus, they're looking for you know disused or common grape varieties that take longer to ripen. Extreme weather, drought, and steadily rising temperatures damage crops that are very uh, sensitive to change. And last year, Spain experienced its hottest year since record-keeping began. The Spanish wine industry is worth 5 billion euros and it's following in the footsteps of France. For instance, the Cognac uh, region will trial climate resistance grapes, while the Bordeaux region introduced six long forgotten red grape varieties which are slow in ripening. I'm pleased you said that. I thought you were going to tell me they were going to be vaping grapes from now on or something because that seems to be as it goes. (laughs) Now, um, holidays. People love a holiday. The Danish parliament, though, has voted to abolish a springtime public holiday. Will that be a popular move? 
Uh, no, it's not a popular move, but the reason why they're doing that is to um, boost its defence budget. Lawmakers voted 95 to 68 to scrap the Great Prayer Day, which is a religious holiday observed since the 17th century. Now, the cancellation will provide an additional 3 billion Danish crowns, which is around 687 million New Zealand dollars, to be used on defence. The Danish government's coalition said the extra money was needed to raise the defence budget to NATO's target of 2% of GDP by 2030 instead of 2033. And everyone's not happy. There's been opposition from opposition politicians, trade unions and religious figures. Uh, while in February, some 50,000 people protested outside Parliament in Copenhagen. Now, currently, the Danes have up to 11 public holidays. And Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen said it shouldn't be a problem for people to work an extra day. Well, that's nice of him. Hey, thank you very much uh, with the latest news out of Europe. That's Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland. Thirteen past five already. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. We go to the UK now, and it's always a pleasure to get to say good morning to Henry Riley. How are you, sir? Nathan, a pleasure to be on. Okay, tell me about this. So Matt Hancock, uh, your former health secretary, he's now out there disputing, I love it when you hear this, when they're disputing claims uh, that he rejected expert advice over COVID tests in care homes. What are you hearing about it, though? What a bombshell this was overnight. So the Daily Telegraph, one of our main newspapers, broadsheet newspapers in the UK, splashed on this story this morning. It came completely out of the blue. They have received 100,000 WhatsApp messages from the former health secretary, Matt Hancock, all relating to messages that he sent whilst he was in the position. Of course, during the coronavirus pandemic, there are 2.3 million words within those 100,000 WhatsApp messages. And the team at the Daily Telegraph have been working hard to try and decipher what exactly is in those particular messages. Now, how have, they, how have they been leaked? Essentially, Matt Hancock, in fact, I've got the book in front of me, Matt Hancock released a book in December called The Pandemic Diaries, where he was mm-hmm. going to sort of almost try and expunge himself from any wrongdoing and try and explain at least his side of the story to be charitable to him and explain why he took some of the decisions he did. He didn't write it on his own. He wrote it with a journalist called Isabel Oakshot, who is fairly controversial in the UK in the sense that she has broken some pretty big stories before. Isabel Oakshot needed many messages to write that book with Matt Hancock. The ones they didn't use, even though she signed reportedly a non-disclosure agreement, essentially a confidentiality clause, she's just leaked them to the Daily Telegraph. So the former health secretary is not particularly happy at all. He's going bananas. He's saying he's exploring all legal routes, you know, potentially could sue. He's saying that it's outrageous that Isabel Oakshot's done this. And what's interesting, Nathan, is Isabel Oakshot is an anti-lockdown journalist journalist and Matt Hancock was the man in government who pushed to have a lockdown so it's strange that they wrote this book in the first place some of the key things that have come out of these whatsapp messages that have been leaked the first one as you say there is a report within those messages that Chris Whitty Sir Chris Whitty our chief medical officer he said that anyone entering a care home should be tested. Matt Hancock didn't want to do that, allegedly. He said it muddies the waters. Only people who arrive in care homes from hospitals should be tested, i.e. if you come into a care home from what's called the community or from a home, then you shouldn't be tested. Visitors also shouldn't be tested because there was a scarcity of tests. Now, many people are saying that actually that costs lives and we had a, a real problem with the, with COVID ripping through care homes in the UK and leading to a horrific number of deaths. And many people laying that blame squarely at the door of Matt Hancock. The other 
uh, claim in there as well. He's about Jacob Rees-Mogg's child, believe it or not. He was believed to have had coronavirus. Jacob Rees-Mogg's the former cabinet minister. He was a cabinet minister at the time. His child was ill. They sent a test off. That test got lost. And then he then had a test couriered to him when there was a backlog of 185,000 people waiting to have their tests processed. Instead, the government decided to courier a test for Mr. Rees-Mogg's child, it is alleged. And so there are many questions for the former health secretary to answer. You'll recall we were speaking only a few months back when he entered the I'm a Celebrity Jungle yes. over in Australia. He's also, I mean, what's striking, Nathan, is three days ago he launched his own TV production company. He's also won a series called SAS Who Dares Wins. He sort of thought he'd be a bit of a reality TV star. And here he is back in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. So two things out of that, Henry. I think you need to call the person in your WhatsApp group who sends the most messages always, the old Matt Hancock of the group. And you were talking there about an (laughs) an anti-lockdown journalist and, and of course, the person who pushed the lockdown. I think they were both pro-money, right? So that's why they probably met there in the middle on uh, wanting to write a book together. Now, this this deal that was struck with the UK and the EU, really interesting since we've been following along since Brexit. Can you tell us the the latest on this detail struck there between the UK and the EU about the trade status of Northern Ireland. Yes, so we're still waiting, in effect. We're in limbo. We have this new Windsor framework, which I know you reported at the start of the week on your programme. We're waiting, essentially. I mean, the, the noise is off from the start from Conservative MPs. And actually, some of the usual suspects who are normally opponents was very positive. People coming out. I mean, you know, there are some well-known names. A man called Steve Baker, who's a former Northern Ireland, well, no, sorry, he's a current Northern Ireland minister, but a well-known Eurosceptic. He has resigned from the government over Brexit in the past. He said it was a great deal. And so the the sort of... Uh, animosity or, you know, um, people opposing the deal was quelled, it seemed. But we are waiting on two key groups, two key caucuses to come out and express their view. We're still waiting. The DUP are currently studying the text at the moment. That's the Democratic Unionist Party over in Northern Ireland. Now, they're a tricky one because they are not taking part in power sharing in Northern Ireland because of the old protocol. The hope is that if they agree to this, they'll go back into power sharing. There are a few rumblings that they're loath to do so. They used to be the largest party in Northern Ireland, and so they would be the first minister. Sinn Féin, the other political party in Northern Ireland, the, the they are the separatist party, not the unionist party. They are currently the majority party. So the DUP, I, I think there's a sense they don't want to play second fiddle in government, but equally they do have some legitimate concerns, it would seem. So we'll get, we'll get something from them in the coming days. And then there is a group of hardline Brexiteers who were very prominent, almost like characters during the Brexit referendum in the UK. They They met yesterday evening. Their lawyers are still going through the text. Remains to be seen how they will vote. Some of the noises from various members are positive. Some have concerns about various parts of the deal, such as Northern Ireland, being able to veto any laws that would apply to it. That will be the key one. And the other two key things, Nathan, will be whether the former prime ministers, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, get behind the deal. You sense at the moment they'll sort of see where the wind is blowing. Yeah, Henry, thank you very much for your time, sir. Uh, So those are all the details out of the big stories in the UK with our friend Henry Riley. It's 20 past five here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. On the programme this morning, you will hear from, uh, look, people living in the Tutera region there, Lake Tutera, just uh, north there of Napier. Uh, they, they need some road access and they need it fast. Also, we're with Local Democracy Reporting Programme. We love that one. And when we come back from the news, we uh, will be in Greymouth. 
Well, uh, time now for our local democracy reporting program. Today we're in Greymouth. It's always a pleasure to get to say good morning to Brendan McMahon. Um, kia ora, Brendan. Hey, tell me about this. Good there morning. Is, I love it when we get to start anything with swathe. It's always good. So there is a swathe of infrastructure, shovel-ready projects there on the, on the West Coast Regional Council's uh, books. Tell us about those. Well, some of them have been there for several years now, um, and they've had issues, you might say, about getting them done. Um, and it's a new year, so they're ever hopeful that uh, they'll deliver. Mainly, this is to do with um, bolstering protection work at Franz Joseph, Hokitika and Greymouth. Um, but there's also the uh, anticipated uh, floods, co-funded flood scheme for Westport, which... Um, the government was going to make a decision on late last year, uh, but it now seems to be maybe tied to what's going to happen with the um, unfortunate cyclone in the North Island yeah. and government reordering. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, actually, you're right. I mean, the the budget comes out in May, so they will have to reorder uh, their spending priorities there. So no one's really got any idea of what's going to happen to that you know, to, to the money, the, I guess, that was um, promised for Westport? Well, the, the government asked uh, the West Coast Regional Council to put forward a $56.4 million co-funded scheme, hmm. um, but it's been sort of delayed, and, and we don't know what's going to happen. Even our local MP is being very uh, close about it. Okay. Um, if, if it doesn't come... But we, the regional council will have to go back to a, its original um, idea, which was a $10.2 million scheme, which obviously is on a much lower scale um, for a town that's, you know, a large town, which has been hammered by flooding in the yeah. last three years. Yeah. So, so Brendan, we're, we're, if if it was to go to that, would that at all fall back on the ratepayer then? Basically, yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's let's talk about the regional council chairman and also gold miner there. Alan Birchfield is on leave until the end of the month after controversy over a dredge. Uh, tell us sure. about the controversy and, and will he return at all? Well, it's he, he says he will. He's on leave for three months uh, due to health reasons. That's the the official line. That uh, this dredge which he owns um, has been and a deal for five or six years now on the West Coast Regional Council's balance sheet um, after a business arm of the council um, entered into an agreement with his company to market and sell the dredge. And, of course, the costs have been on the balance sheet, which has it's got a lot of people into, and you might say, a state of um, excitement. Um, Alan has... Uh, <laughs> He's 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 a he's a colourful figure. Um, he's he says what he thinks. He honestly believes in what he says. Um, and his style has 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 been criticised within the council. And um, yeah, he's he's a figure that um, is loved and loathed. Uh, well, yeah. Which is always makes things interesting when it does. It does. It does, it does for doesn't it? Covering <laughs> politics. Always <laughs> <laughs> goes. Hey, yeah. Brendan, thank you very much for your time, no sir. Worries. There is uh, out of Greymouth, that's Brendan McMahon. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. 
my birthday heavy today, the 2nd of March, as I had a bit of a look through and fell into the 2nd of March rabbit hole. Happy 55th birthday, Daniel Craig, probably a big first up podcast listener. Uh, James Bond, Benoit Blanc, Sergeant Yapi Borta from The Power of One back in 1992. Good film, very good film. Um, so happy 55th birthday to Daniel Craig. Let's look at others that appeared on this day. In 1933, Marion C. Cooper went, what are you going to this? It's my film. And people went, oh! It was King Kong that premiered in New York City on this day in 1933. Uh, that's back in the days when people used to wear hats to the cinema. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes says that that is the greatest horror film of all time. Okay. Uh, on this day in 1935, happy birthday to the oldest Warner Brothers cartoon character. No, not the rabbit. It's the pig. Porky Pig. Uh, first appeared in I Haven't Got a Hat, which was released on this day in 1935. Should be called Haven't Got Any Pants, because I don't think I've ever seen Porky Pants. Uh, also born on this day in 1904, Theodore Seuss Geisel wrote 48 books, did Dr. Seuss. 200 million books have been sold, and um, his last book before his death was Oh, The Places You'll Go, first published in 1990. What a book that is, real tearjerker for parents, that one. And on this day, in 1860, Susanna Salter was born. Wonderful story about Susanna. Uh, she lived to the uh, ripe old age of 101, but that's not the story. She was the first US woman elected as a mayor in Argonia in Kansas. Now, she was part of the temperance movement. There were a lot of local MPs that were upset about that, so they put her up as a prank. She didn't even know she was on the nominations until the morning of the election, but nominated without her knowledge by a group of men trying to embarrass her. The temperance movement showed up and they voted in large numbers. She won two-thirds of the vote. So she won the election, she banned hard cider from the town and then stepped down one year later and didn't run for re-election. So happy birthday, Susanna Salter, the first woman elected as a mayor in the United States of America. Giles Beckford is with us now. Kia ora, Giles. How are you? Kia ora to you, Nathan. That last reference to uh, Ms. Salter and the joke election, I was thinking we've elected quite a few jokes uh, in our time <laughs> in this country. <laughs> I like the fact that she went, oh, really? I mean, all right. Bam, you can't have booze. Bye. Yeah. I'm off. See you then. <laughs> done, job done. <laughs> job done for me. Um, the Prosperity Index. What is that? Where does New Zealand stand? And is there a prosperity confidence uh, one? Because I imagine that's low. <laughs> well, uh, it's a, a, an annual survey done by a think tank in London called the Legatum Institute. Mm. Its motto is Pathways from Poverty to Prosperity. And it produces this prosperity index uh, every year. Uh, you look at the list of the top 10, and I can say New Zealand is in the top 10. Well, it rounds out the top 10, although in previous years we have been higher. But the first four countries, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, I think, don't we always keep getting compared to the Scandinavian countries? And don't the people point us to them having the best model? This index is compiled on the basis of a whole host of studies. It looks at education systems, freedom uh, within society, environment, political system, labour rights, uh, social cohesion, a whole pile more. And they make a measure and they crunch it all together. So New Zealand ranks number 10. You have to say, um, you know, we are the only non 
European continental country in mm. that top 10. So we beat out Australia, which is 15th. We beat out the US, which is 19th. So we can take some pride in it, I suppose. But um, just once again, you know, one wonders, what is it that the Scandinavians are doing that uh, you know, we keep being encouraged to do? 55% tax rates? Well, that might well be it. Or yeah. 57.2 in Sweden's right. case. I just had a look at it. She Googled it. My all, God, 57. All, all enveloping social systems. Yeah. But you you pay for it, but you get it, so to speak. But, you know, these countries aren't uh, necessarily pristine. You know, they've all been under pressure, particularly places like uh, Sweden, uh, with large influx of uh, people from uh, Sudan and third world people who've moved out of um, you know, their own countries seeking a better life. And that's given so, rise to some real pressures within those countries as well. So perhaps the Legatum Prosperity Index doesn't capture everything, or perhaps those countries uh, are just doing things better overall. Hmm. It raises some questions for us. You know, and these things, although we sometimes smirk and say, oh, look how good we are, isn't it great? We're number 10, we beat the Aussies. The point being is that they tell us something about ourselves and perhaps we should uh, you know, have some, as they would say, conversations. Yeah. Thank you very much, Giles. There you are. You can hear more from Giles and the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 at 27. If you're out there shopping with your New Zealand's dollar, you can buy the following. 62.4 US cents, 92.52 Australian cents, 58.48 Euro cents, 52 British pence, 4.2 yuan and 85.01 Japanese yen. Go sporty. The New Zealand Open golf tournament is back for the first time since 2020, and players about to tee off in about two hours at the Millbrook Resort in Queenstown. Nice. It's the first edition, like we said, since 2020. And I spoke to the tournament director, John Hart. Yep, the former All Black coach, John Hart, about the tournament getting back on its feet. Yeah, it's been difficult, obviously, initially. Uh, last two years, we've had late cancellations because of government restrictions, and uh, that meant, of course, that a lot of financial loss for Millbrook, but it's been we've been three years in the waiting we've got a fantastic field we've got a fantastic amateur field we've got people we've had a wait list of people wanting to get in it's very interesting to see with times are tough and yet we've managed to retain all of our corporate sponsors and add two more and increase our prize money at a time when really the spiral's going the other way so i think the tournament's in really good shape and very good, particularly on the international stage, because uh, a lot of the money that comes into this tournament comes from international sponsors and supporters. How do you manage that then, to be able to keep them happy when you've been really been able to offer them nothing the last few years? Well, I guess they look, Nathan, at the tournament. They love coming to Queenstown. And if I look out the window now and I see Millbrook Resort and see just how fantastic it's looking, this is a wonderful place to play golf. It's a wonderful place to visit. And our international visitors just love coming to Queenstown and coming to Millbrook Resort. So I guess, you know, like a lot of other people around the world, there have been a lot of restrictions on people's ability to travel. And so now they can come into our country freely and they can enjoy it. I think they've been excited to wait and, and have the opportunity of now coming here. Yeah. You know, you, you've mentioned the, the pro-am element to it. I, I think it's great. I, I love that. And the one I, I ask you, I badger you about this, the greatest of all the celebrity golfers out there, Kenny G. Have you managed to get Kenny G this time? No, no, no. I haven't got He's Kenny too hard G. to get, isn't he? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, no, no. We, 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 we focus on 
To be honest, we focus on uh, New Zealand celebrities or ambassadors. We've got a few international people. We've got Larry Fitzgerald, a, a top NFL player, oh. um, who's with us. We've got Ian Botham, who's been a great supporter of the tournament. He wasn't too happy uh, yesterday when England got beaten in the last, uh, <laughs> the last with a run to go or something. But, yeah, we've got guys today into the tournament. Sean Fitzpatrick is making his first appearance. Brendan McCullum. Uh, Jeff Wilson, Stephen Fleming, Hayden Padden are all returning. And Ella Gunson, the Blacksticks uh, legend, uh, is having her first visit to Millbrook. And I've got to say, she's thoroughly enjoying it. Tell us about the pro field. Um, I'm trying to manifest a local winner here. If, if, if I think it, I can make it happen. Which New Zealander should I be thinking the most about that might be able to make it happen at the New Zealand Open? Well, I think the good news story of sport in New Zealand in 2022 was the rise of Steve Elka. To foresee what he achieved in winning the Champions Tour against the world's greatest names was something else. And, and Steve headlines our tournament. Uh, we are delighted to have him playing. And, uh, you know, he's just an absolute professional. He's done so much to help us. And uh, there'd be nothing to make me happier than to see him win the event. But, you know, it's a tough tournament. I have a sneaking regard for a local, Ben Campbell. I think he's a player that knows the course well and is informed. So it'd be great to see a Kiwi win it. It's a strong international field from Japan. We've got a very strong Japanese field, strong Asian field few players from the Korean tour so it's got a real there's half the players are on from the Australasian tour which really effectively is Australian New Zealanders and the other half is comes to us from Japan and Asia and Korea. There we are John Hart there uh, director of the tournament by the way our producer Leonard Powell who knows a little something something about golf he uh, wants to go on the record says that New Zealand's Nick Voke will be the champion come Sunday you heard it here folks by the way you heard me mention Kenny G I was not joking he is the greatest of these celebrity golfers that's out there he is still on scratch uh, for his um, that's his handicap so those of you that understand golf will know he's not bad at what he does. Well, around 150 residents from the isolated Hawke's Bay region around Lake Tutera and also Putarino met last night to put their heads together and figure out how on earth they're going to reunite with the rest of the world. A washed out bridge to the north and then there's a huge slip just to the south means that the area, which spans about 25 kilometres of State Highway 2, north of Napier, is completely cut off. There's a goat track and helicopters and that's the only ways in or out. Yesterday, residents confined to that area headed to the sports centre there in Putarino to meet with national and local authorities, utility operators and farming organisations. Putarino farmer and rural firefighter Ben McIntosh told our producer Matthew Tunison that the army cooked them a barbecue with meat provided from beef and lamb New Zealand. I think there's probably 150 people here today and just a meeting with them giving us some feedback as to what progress they're making in Wellington and them getting feedback from us to how we're getting on and fearing so yeah, it was just a good community meeting. All right, and did you did you hear what you needed to in, in terms of what support is on its way? It was all pretty positive. Like We understand that Unison, the Powerlands people, and the roading contractors and all that have a shitload of work. Like we, The more we see from the outside world as we get communication, we actually realise we're isolated, we've got no power and our roads are closed, but we haven't got the damage like Esk Valley. We've all got slips on our farm, we've all got damage, but we're alive and... Most of us have our homes. There was a couple lost or damaged, but we're actually faring pretty well in here, to be honest. And the support from the rest of the country is, I struggle to put it into words. We can't believe what's been donated and flowing in, and like it's overwhelming. 
the fact that we can have a meeting tonight where 150 locals got together, the army's actually staying in here, they've cooked the barbecue for us, Beef and Lamb have donated the meat, so we're having a couple of beers donated by Balance Agri-Nutrients, so a good get-together. What more can we ask for, really? Awesome, and, and people need it, don't they? People need that community feeling and oh, to hear from their neighbours. They sure do, and we've had it in spades in here, like, the first four, probably, first week we had really limited communication, and we're just, the community coming together, anyone who could drive a digger, was on a digger opening roads. Anyone who could drive a tractor on a chainsaw, and within seven days, we had every road in the community open that we could. In terms of access now, how is the army getting in? How is anyone getting in? Helicopter, is it? There's helos coming in. So access is still limited. Um, there's lots of options on the table, and we don't really know what's going to come first, so I don't, re- I don't even want to speculate as to what may be our best route in and out of here. We just wait to see what the powers that be have to say, but that is our biggest issue going forward. Unison, we're here, and those guys have done an awesome job. We should have power by Monday, they say, which that, that'll just be magic. That's a game-changer. What about stock, uh, livestock? Some concerns for people not being able to reach animals and, and concerns for their welfare. What, what have you heard? What's your situation? My situation, I've accounted for all my livestock. One thing, I didn't lose any animals in the actual storm, but because of our highly erodible soils here, there's tomos opening up, so basically holes on the ground. So I've lost a couple of cows since that have just fallen into holes that never used to be there. And that's probably going to be ongoing. That's my personal situation. As far as access goes, half the farm's inaccessible, but we'll get there. And other people will be in the same boat. Some people won't have seen all their stock, and some will have stock unaccounted for, and some will have way more losses than me. But our big concern with stock is we need heavy vehicle access in and out of here, I'd say within a month, because sheep and beef farmers need to get lambs out. Otherwise, they are not going to have a pasture cover going into winter. And then if that's our case, then every animal is going to suffer. There won't be enough feed for the ewes. That will be a terrible situation. That's kind of where we're at now. Yeah, because I think the the road at the I think the Devil's Elbow is it. That's quite bad, from what I've heard. You may know more, and also the bridge to the north. That's also quite bad. So is that? Do you have any timeline? Have you heard anything about when it could be repaired? No. So the bridge to the north is gone. There is no bridge anymore. We actually farm above that bridge. So the morning of um, morning after Gabriel, I went out and shifted some stock, and I looked it down, and shit, the bridge is gone. So. That's when I knew this is probably quite bad. And then to the elbow to the north, uh, yeah, we get mixed reports. Some say you could probably get through if you tried, and some say it's closed. So officially it's closed, but we I don't really know. I personally don't really know. Okay. Um, but whatever they decide, they kind of need to pick a route sooner rather than later and, and get that open. But we had Tanya Kerr, our regional councillor. Well, she's actually the deputy mayor of Hastings here today. And council are willing to get stuff going. From what we understand, it's Waka Katahi that are sort of holding up the works a bit, just a bit too much red tape. Like, now that the initial response is gone, like I say, we open up the roads, just rip shit and bust and get shit open. Now things are, the red tape's kicking in and got to find a place for the silt, which is a mountain of dirt from what I understand, and that's going to hinder any progress if they can't find somewhere to dump that silt. So if I can just emphasise one more thing, if you are going to broadcast this, it's just the thanks to all, everyone around the country for helping us and a huge thanks to the volunteers in our district, the forestry workers, anyone who could drive a digger for opening up roads and our fire crew, our fire chief and 2IC and the members of the crew just like first few days just pulling together, no communication, what do we do? 
just come together, right? We check on these people. We open these roads. We step by step. It's, yeah, it's been awesome. That is Potorino farmer and rural firefighter Ben McIntosh. Excuse me, it's 17 to 6. I'm Nathan Rattity here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we'll preview Morning Report with Corin. And uh, also Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Cipolloni joins the programme. As you can see, lots of things to prioritise. We'll speak to her about those. The professionals of Morning Report are here after 6 uh, with a quick uh, preview of that and, and also something else too, yeah, a bit of a documentary too. We'll, we'll get to what's happening on Morning Report first with Corin. Kia ora Corin, how are you? Uh, kia ora, good morning. We'll focus quite heavily this morning on the issues around managed retreat, insurance and particularly those places like Esk Valley and the Hawke's Bay where there's big issues there about rebuilding. Brian Roach uh, is in this morning. Uh, he, uh, Sir Brian Roach, he, he is the chair of the Cyclone Recovery Task Force that was set up and their immediate job is to really look at those areas as to whether they can be rebuilt or how they would be rebuilt, what's going to be needed, and then they'll advise the government. So uh, I think it's one of the first times we've heard from him, so that will be an interesting listen. Uh, we've got to deal mm. with the rugby. We've got to deal with the rugby uh, and this surprise sort of, well, it's not a surprise, but it was a very hastily announced press conference yesterday. Well, when you draw a line, you, you got to, I guess you got to go over it, don't you? Yeah. David you know? Moffat's in this morning to talk to us. He won't mince his words. Um, about what he thinks uh, in terms of this whole process, but we are obviously going to have a new All Black coach after the World Cup. How does it? Where does that leave poor old Ian Foster? Uh, it's hard not to feel sorry for him, but mm. then at the same time, you, I feel sorry for the other guys as well. Well, let's be honest, it was, the whole thing's one, a bit of a, it was one a game away from getting sacked. Remember last year? So yeah, you know what I mean. He was definitely riding. Well, on it, it was. A, it was. A, that's right. It was a. It was a last gasp win in South Africa that yeah. saved him. Um, yeah. it must Mind be, you, he, he didn't want to reapply, so you know he, he could. Well, but he, I, I understand that, but you feel like, oh, okay, if you're if you're interviewing, it's probably not me then, is it? Yeah, I mean, it just feels the whole thing has a. It was an Andrew Savile on one new sour taste to it. It does have that little bit of a like, oh, why did it have to be all like this? But anyway, it, it has to be done, and there's going to be a new coach, and you've got to think that surely Scott Robertson has done what needs to be done, but yeah, then Jamie Joseph a, is in the yes, mix. Yes, they leak out what are the words, can you get them to work together, or what have you, do their styles mix, or do you get both, or whatever. But, Look, yeah. To be honest, Jamie Joseph or Scott Robertson, either of them would be great. It would be fantastic. But, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, tell us about the, the documentary on the, the parliamentary protest, which is out today. Gosh, yes. was it a year ago? I, a year ago today. It's Far unbelievable, out. isn't it? Um, yeah, it's called Boiling Point. Uh, it's about a 45-minute video documentary. Uh, it's really uh, uh, Angus Drever is uh, an RNZ cameraman and editor. Now he mm. he felt he was working at the protests, and on that last day, he sort of had the foresight to sort of do a lot of filming, and he managed to get right in there up close. It's quite extraordinary some of this vision. Now he came to me, and we sort of think, look, look, we could turn this into a curated piece of of journalism, if you like, because um, there's so much amazing vision. A lot of the stuff that you've seen might have seen from the protests was kind of from afar, mm. um, because it was pretty scary. A lot of it towards the end, it yeah, really well, did descend into with a right. Camera, you were standing in the way of missiles that were flying. And he was around. right there, and, yeah. and others, and some others too. We we have also used some other vision as well from another guy, another reporter called Graham Bloxham, who was at Wellington Live, and he was sort of literally um, having bricks flying over his head. Um, it is uh, a, a very full-on watch because it is a, a, a very uh, difficult 
thing to go back and watch because it was very stressful for all involved. Mm. We've taken a very straight line here. We're, we're saying this is what happened over the course of that final day. People will make their own judgments about that. Um, so it's quite an old-fashioned sort of documentary in a sense that um, it, it just lays out the day as it unfolds, which in itself I believe is a compelling story and an important mm. story because it needs, I feel like it, it needs to sort of be on their record as a curated piece that people can in future go look back on and remember what happened because it was an extraordinary event in New Zealand's political history and one which, you know, is disturbing in so many ways and uh, I think needs to be remembered. It's uncomfortable I think it is uncomfortable sometimes having to look at hmm. some of what happened there, but it is New Zealand, and we have to we have to own that and, and everything that's about it. It's complex, you know. There were protesters there who were trying to keep the peace and trying to stop their own people from from being violent, and then there were some who were dead set on being violent and and or, or, or certainly pushing back against the police. Hmm. So it was complex, and there was a mix. This isn't a documentary about misinformation or the mandates per se. This is a documentary about what happened on that Catching last day, day. How, yes. it, how it unfolded, and why we need to remember that because we don't want this to happen again. I'll be interested to see what sort of feedback you get from that because it can be quite... Uh, oh, look, I'm sure... People feel very, yep. very on either side of that. I don't. Yep. Th- it's very hard to find a middle ground person here. No, no, and I appreciate that. And and that's why people will, will uh, can make their own judgments. All I would say to those people is that Angus and I have tried very hard. You know, we really yeah. have tried hard to tell a straight story here. And... Uh, you know, the point is that we have tried. Where, where, we, where we... we won't be perfect, no. but we have tried our damnedest to where, do Where do that. we find it? Where is this? Uh, this will be on the RNZ website from 6am this morning, so in yeah. about 10 minutes' time. And there's a, there's a big page there with lots of um, background information and all that sort of stuff there. Um, it'll be out on all sort of social media channels as well. But uh, go to the RNZ website and you'll find it pretty pretty easily. Good stuff. Thank you very much, Corin. Uh, Corin Dan here up after 6 o'clock with Kim Hill. <laughs> So back to uh, News in Hawke's Bay, extra police are being sent there to support victims of Cyclone Gabrielle, some of whom say they're being targeted by criminals. The government and police initially had played down concerns over the crime spike in Cyclone hit areas and Prime Minister Chris Hipkins was dismissive of reports that road workers had had guns pulled on them. He later apologised for his comments, saying that he received incorrect intel from police. So uh, with us now is the Deputy Prime Minister, Carmel uh, Sepuloni. Uh, kia ora, thank you very much for being here with us. So uh, um, what why have the government and the police been so keen to dismiss people's concerns over crime so early on? Oh, look, it's uh, certainly not undermining the experience of people on the ground. Um, we operate off the information that we're given. And so, um, as the Prime Minister has said, you know, perhaps he wasn't given as much information as he, was need- as he needed at the beginning. Okay. Um, but you're more confident now that the information that's coming through is will, will be, I guess, more accurate from now? Well, that's certainly um, the, the hope, and um, there's lots of conversations going on with police to make sure that there's a clear line of communication. Okay. Um, what sort of, now that we hear this, so what sort of police presence can people expect in Hawke's Bay in the coming days? Well, certainly the police have been active across the course of the, the cyclone and the, the flooding, um, and so of course they want to see police on the ground, and so there are numbers there, and it's important that they're engaging with people so that they're aware of what is happening.
Um, residents are, are talking about the, you know being being incredibly anxious for things they've heard that they're unable to sleep. I heard the other day someone saying they're going to arm themselves, which I thought, oh please no, New Zealand don't do that. So just in the way, do you re- do you regret the way that the affairs w- weren't put to rest sooner? Oh, look, people are going through a really stressful time, and obviously there's a lot happening off the back of these weather events. And so we just need to make sure that communication is really strong and really precise moving forward, and that's certainly the intent. Okay. Um, what's been now? We just heard before there from uh, some people there in around Tutira and Putarino there. So that's between Napier and Wairau for those that have just tuned in. You know, for them it's quite hard. What, what's been done to cut through some of the red tape around clearing roads so that they can move stock in and out of places like 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 that around New Zealand? Look, it's it's going to it's not going to be an easy journey. Uh, obviously, we've got a number of regions that have been impacted by. Um, the weather events and so everyone's moving as quickly as they possibly can and um, there has been money that's been put into um, supporting businesses supporting farmers supporting the community response as well as the civil defense payments that have been put up there and also money towards Māori um, providers and organizations that are very active on the ground in particular regions um, but this is going to take some time um, we do have it now set up so that we've got ministerial leads in the provinces so they can tell us what is happening, they can give us feedback about what needs to happen and where priority needs to go. Um, but we certainly don't have all of the answers at this point in time. Okay. Let, let's just jump into the stages of it because I was going through it in my head last night and I thought, so there's always like you know an assessment stage to have a look at and then you move to, to I guess, plan stage and action stage or whatever. About where are we in that horribly described timeline that I just gave? Oh, we're still in response and recovery, and so going through the the motions of those two things, um, as well as having the ministerial leads on the ground, of course, we've got um, Minister Robertson and Minister Edmonds, who are are leading the central government response and collating all of that information. As ministers, we're getting around to the regions and to the areas that have been affected. Today, I'm off to Wellsford, tomorrow to Gisborne. Um, to assess whether or not our parts of this machine that need to respond are responding as quickly as they can and also assessing what needs to be done and in what order. And so we're certainly engaged with what is happening, um, but it's not going to be a quick recovery or rebuild. Right. Yeah, because people, I guess, you know what it's like. There are people there dealing with it. And everyone we've spoken to has a really, there's almost a stock standard answer. They go, look, I know it's happening to lots of people and it's terrible what happened in other places, but I've got all this silt. And if we could just get this moved, you know, there's, we're, we're reaching that stage now where there's a bit of desperation for people for what they can see right in front of them. When, when do we get to the action stage or when, when do you, like, like, when do you envisage that happening? Look, it's already happening, and it's probably not happening as quickly as what people would like. The silt is one of the most difficult and challenging um, parts of this because removing it is not easy. Um, You know, the the sheer amount of silt that we're dealing with here um, that needs to be removed from places is, is pretty hard to comprehend in many areas. And so... It is a process that's underway, um, but it's not going to be fast. Okay. There's many people living in Hawke's Bay as well as uh, Tairawhiti, Northland, probably Coromandel, Auckland there as well, who, who've had some damage there. That they don't want to live in their homes anymore. Can you outline the government's intentions for, for these properties? Look, we haven't uh, looked into any kind of managed retreat program at this point in time. 
Um, what we're focused on is the recovery at large and moving quickly to support people and families that have been displaced. So that's kind of the, the part of the process that we're, we're in. Um, as I said earlier, the government has moved quickly, though, to put in place a cabinet committee and regional ministerial leads to help coordinate the central government response and recovery from the cyclone. Um, but it's going to take weeks, if not months, to assess the full extent of damage and to ascertain uh, what the, pro the, the process looks like moving forward to actually um, recover and rebuild. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni, thank you very much for your time this morning. Yes, yeah, so hopefully there, uh, listeners, you, you got uh, some information that you need, uh, particularly for those of you in those areas. Look, it's, I feel horrible for you. Um, and it is that part, isn't it? Like, like we said, everyone has been tremendous in their understanding that there are others around there too. But it's it's your reality. It's the one that's right outside your door. Of course you're like, please can you just get this fixed at the moment? It is uh, very tough. Uh, another one very quick. Uh, happy second, happy 62nd birthday to John Bon Jovi. Uh, Louise says it's nice to awake early enough to listen to the show this dark autumnal morning. Oh, autumnal. Autumnal. That's the best word this morning. Um, and by the way, Corin Dan is, is fined $2 for saying the Hawks Bay. Uh, that's in my swear jar. There it goes. There's no the. There right. uh, morning reports next with Kim and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, have a uh, wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Uh, poor, poor. $2, Corin, $2.